Welcome to Season 4 of the Unscripted Podcast, a podcast by medical students about living and learning at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. On the show, we host a variety of discussions such as navigating the preclinical and clinical years, exploring humanism in medicine, and developing our physician identities outside of the textbook. Check out the show notes or our website for more information, helpful links, resources, and more. Please connect with us via email or on Twitter at unscripted underscore med. We'd love to hear from you, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Unscripted Medicine Podcast. My name is Rachel Holloway, and I I am joined today by my co-host, Alex Gelati. Hi, Alex. Hi. Hello, everyone listening out there. (laughs) Thank you for letting us be in your ears today. (laughs) Uh, Today we are joined on this episode by Jules Madzai, who is an MD PhD candidate here at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. Hey Jules. Hi. Well we are so excited to have you on the podcast today Jules. Thanks for being here. Um, Well we can just go ahead and dive right in to today's discussion. Um, If you wouldn't mind just telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and what your dissertation topic is on. Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm also really excited to be here. Um, Yeah, a little bit about myself. Um, I am a sixth year MD-PhD candidate here at UC. Um, I'm doing my PhD in sociology. Um, Kind of specifically, um, my dissertation is on how systemic inequalities, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, that are really built into medical education and medical institutions shape how medical students experience uh, medical education and make their specialty choices. Wow. That's a lot to tackle. And for the listeners, when we were talking beforehand, this will be close to a 300-page dissertation. So we probably will not scratch the even <laughs> the surface of all your hard work. But do you mind explaining like how you decided on this topic and came how this idea came about? Yeah, sure. Um, so as I was going through my first few years of grad school, you know, doing lots of reading, writing lots of papers, I realized that a lot of the things that we in medicine kind of just like take for granted as the, the truth about the ways that people experience racism, sexism, etc. throughout medical education um, actually don't have a lot of research to back them up. Or the research that does exist is a lot of like descriptive, quantitative research just showing that these inequalities exist, but it doesn't really go much further um, or dig any deeper into exploring why they happen or how they really affect um, students' experiences. And so I realized that I was in sort of a unique position um, as someone doing a PhD in sociology and also someone who has done two years of med school and will go back to med school and has the experience of being a queer and non-binary person in medicine. Um, Yeah, I realized I was in a unique position to do research to fill that gap. We're very glad that you are filling that gap in terms of the research because I think it's very needed. And just like reading the little snippets (laughs) that you gave us was very insightful. So just kind of going like straight into it, in what you gave us, there was this big discussion about, you know, professionalism and how that kind of was created for, you know, the medical field and how that might be different, um, you know, the concept of how one expresses professionalism may be different depending on kind of your backgrounds and 
how we're like graded on this on in our third and fourth years and kind of how that can be very excluding for kind of marginalized communities. And so I just wanted to get like your your thoughts on it and how this can be like truly detrimental to how students experience medical school. Yeah, so professionalism standards in in any field really are determined by the social norms of the institution setting the standards. And so in a field like medicine, which for many years and still in this day to some extent in a lot of places, a lot of specialties, um, is dominated by cisgender straight white men. And so the professionalism standards are biased toward people who share that identity. And so for medical students with minoritized identities, um, this can mean that just their natural appearance or just their natural communication style is seen as inherently unprofessional. And so, like, for example, many med schools will have, um, you know, sections in their handbook um, that describe professional attire um, for men and for women. And um, then, you know, where does that leave non-binary people or other people whose gender expression doesn't conform with traditionally masculine and feminine gender presentations. When, you know, for a lot of students feeling like they have to dress in certain ways that don't feel gender affirming in order to be perceived as professional can then cause a lot of mental, emotional distress, um, worsen gender dysphoria. Another example, um, a lot of the black women participants I talked to in my dissertation research um, talked about pressure that they felt to not wear their hair natural um, because they fear they'd be perceived as unprofessional. And so a lot of them would end up spending a lot of time, money, and effort doing their hair in ways that would be more acceptable to Eurocentric beauty standards. And so, yeah, kind of all of these are examples of ways that um, students with minoritized identities end up putting a lot of mental and emotional effort into um, conforming with the professionalism standards that they feel are expected of them in medicine. This is so interesting because I think that it's not something that people think about very frequently, especially people who conform to typical Eurocentric, cis, hetero, norm presentations. People who fit in those identities, they don't think about this very much, but I think that they're whether you know it or not, are probably implicit biases with preceptors and people that you see in the hallways. It, I think that that also plays a role. Um, so this is really interesting, and I found it really intriguing to read about the research that you had done and the interviews that you had done with all of the people. Very timely, too, because I feel like we've had discussions with professors and medical students who will get evaluations kind of back and have Mm -hmm. comments about professionalism that they may disagree with um, in terms of how they dress and like how they dress may not actually be um, unprofessional it's just to that greater it does not meet their idea Um, and how that can make really medical students feel isolated you brought up like quotes about how people will like hide their sexual orientation or like gender identity or like try to conform to what they think people will perceive them as can be very i imagine lonely and isolating in a in a year where you're already isolated from your classmates kind of speaking to that would you like to like mention some like consequences or like some things you've gotten through your like interviews while writing this about how it has impacted students yeah, for sure. So 
when these extra pressures of um, regulating their appearance or regulating expression of emotion, uh, concealing a queer identity, um, when these are kind of added to the plates of students with minoritized identities day after day, that can understandably really take a toll on people's mental and emotional well-being. Um, and a lot of people that I talked to felt that those pressures really affected their ability to focus and perform at the level that they wanted to in med school. So in the first two years, they felt like it might it would affect their just ability to focus while trying to study, which then you know can impact how they would score on exams, and that can then kind of have all these all these um, negative consequences down the line that in some cases could limit their future career options. Then, or another another way it can play out is if there if a student is um, is afraid that there will be negative consequences if they are um, open about their queer identity in residency applications. That might lead them to not talk about ways that they were involved in research, advocacy, other things related to LGBTQ health, um, because they might fear this would out them to program directors. Um, and then that automatically puts them at a disadvantage, because then there might be these gaps in their involvement where PDs can then be like, what were you doing with your time? And then they really just don't get to showcase like a lot of um, you know, incredible work that they might have been doing throughout medical school. Um, so then that kind of can put people at a disadvantage in that way, too. Mm. I'm curious, Jules, do you find that there are differences between uh, people who reveal their gender identities or sexual orientation in residency interviews and applications between specialties? Yes. So people who were going into family medicine and pediatrics um, almost uniformly felt comfortable um, being open about their sexual orientation and gender identity um, throughout their residency application process. And most of those people talked a lot about how they really wanted their future work to be related in some way to um, to those identities, to LGBTQ health. Mm -hmm. And then it was sort of in just about every other specialty where people might eventually decide that they would be out on on residency applications but it wasn't like an obvious choice for them it was more like they they spent a lot of time thinking about it and weighing the pros and cons and things like that the biggest difference though really was by um gender so specifically queer men that i talked to like I think almost across the board, decided that they were going to be out throughout the residency application process. Um, lots of different people said, they were like, I mean, there are tons of gay men in medicine and I see lots of examples of them being successful. And so I don't feel like there's anything detrimental to me like coming out um, in the residency application process. Whereas queer women um, kind of felt differently. And most of those participants decided that they were not going to be open about their queer identities um, because they didn't feel like they had as many examples of queer women physicians who they could look to to be like, okay, I can be open about this and still be successful in medicine. Hmm. Do you think that's because there aren't as many queer women in medicine? Or do you think that maybe the intersectionality of being a woman and being queer plays a role in people's comfort uh, comfort in coming out in the workplace? I think it's definitely probably more the second one. Uh, I think that um, that 
yeah, there are probably the same or similar numbers of of them in medicine, um, but it, it probably is more about the the comfort of people being out in the workplace. Speaking of intersectionality, in the paper you discussed also how the difference between like ethnic and racial um, groups and also having a queer identity and how that may also play. So like men who are black and identify as gay may not disclose that as uh, more willingly than their uh, white counterparts. And same goes for like women who are also um, black and queer identifying. So I just want to take a moment and like discuss that a little bit and how that may um, play a role or like add extra burden to these applicants, especially in terms of like limiting maybe where they feel comfortable applying to. Yeah, yeah, there was one participant um, specifically who was a gay black man and he talked about how um, he he was going to medical school in a pretty conservative place. And so he felt like, especially in this place where in all likelihood, uh, a lot of his attendings were pretty conservative people. He felt like not only was he already one of the only black medical students in his class, then he was also one of the only openly queer medical students in his class. And each of those alone, you know, might have been okay. Like he might have felt comfortable being like the only one and being, you know, open and outspoken about it. But um, kind of the combination of, of those two identities together really made him feel kind of like he just stood out so much um, that he had to basically be perfect all the time. And so that, of course, added a lot of extra pressure to his plate. And he said that, you know, on some clerkships, he just felt like in order to get a good grade and be really evaluated on a level playing field with his peers that he just had to basically kind of just be quiet, lay low, not be open about his sexual orientation at all, not, you know, dress in any way that like might that that was like a genuine expression of his queer identity. And so it definitely, um, for him and for a lot of other participants, had a, a big um, kind of emotional impact. Yeah, I can't even imagine having to bear that weight on his shoulders of having... I mean, he's essentially... It, it sounds like he felt like he was representing both of those identities like as the only one in his medical school. And that is a huge weight and burden to bear. And so I can't imagine having to do that. I am curious, how did you identify the people that you interviewed for your dissertation? Um, So I um, advertised the study on social media, so med Twitter and Instagram. And then I also worked with um, people in the administration at four different med schools across the country Mm -hmm. so that they could send out um, the the flyer um, for recruitment for the study on listservs um, for like their SNMA chapter or their Mm -hmm. um, like LGBTQ med student group, things like that. And Mm -hmm. so I ended up talking to 49 different students, all of whom identified as one or more of racial or ethnic identity that was not white Um, gender identity that was not cisgender male, and a sexual orientation that was not heterosexual. So they could have one or two or three of those different things. Um, And they ended up being from schools all across the country. Hmm. 
That's super interesting. I want to kind of go into back back into the the concept of like hiding oneself in terms of going to fields because you mentioned like pediatric family medicine are more we'll say open and uh, individuals feel more comfortable expressing themselves however that may be but we know of certain professions that I will not name but they tend to be um, more closed off less open-minded how do applicants like go into those fields because those fields still want diverse applicants or at least that's what they say mm. but in terms of that environment do applicants still apply readily and like openly to those fields or yeah I mean it's 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 really tough I mean um there were quite a few people that I talked to for my study who um specifically people who were queer and trans who really, really liked surgery, but decided that they could not go into it because it was not an environment that they felt like they could be themselves in. And they felt that experiencing that day after day for for years was not something that like they're, that they could handle. And so for some people, they did just go into other specialties entirely, even though they really liked like the content of the work of surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for other people, um, you know, they were excited enough about surgery or, you know, whatever specialty it is that, um, that they were willing to, it was worth it for them to tone down, you know, sort of expressions of, um, of their own identity, it, you know, just enough to, to make them palatable enough to, um, you know, they, they could say like, you know, I'm going to be the first like gay, you know, resident in this program or whatever, but they're not going to like, paint their nails for their interview or, you know, that, like that kind of thing. Mm. Um, so, mm-hmm. so it's really going to differ for everyone depending on what their own priorities are and the kind of salience mm-hmm. of their own identities, um, in mm-hmm. who they want to be professionally. For some people, just the difficulties associated with maintaining a professional identity that isn't authentic to who they are is just not worth it at all. Um, and so in that case, you or people I talked to did choose to go into other specialties. For the ones who go into those specialties, do they end up being more of themselves once they've matched or um, do they tend to just go like the whole residency and wait until they're like out practicing on their own to be able to fully express their true self? So um, for the people I talked to, they were all in their fourth year of medical school. And so I don't know actually what they will end up doing, but the thoughts that they had at the time, at least, was that they would, you know, do what they had to do just to match. And then Mm. they would try to be more themselves, um, whatever that meant to them, once they were actually in the residency program. How much that actually happens, um, I don't know from my own data. I can imagine it would be kind of difficult because if you feel like it's a it's a program where you can't really be yourself when you're interviewing there, I don't know that it would necessarily feel any better or more comfortable to be yourself once you're actually like a resident in that program. Um, but I do plan to do follow up interviews with people um, that I that I interviewed. So um, within the next couple of years, I and planning to reach back out to people and kind of see what specialties they ended up in and sort of how they have um, 
manage their professional identities and things like that um, as they've moved throughout residency. Mm. It's going to be interesting. I think that, yeah, that is so interesting. I think that speaks a lot to two things. One, I think it speaks to the competition of the match process and how competitive it is and the the fact that people feel the need to damper themselves and portray themselves in a different light in order to simply match and get a job out of four years of medical school. That's saying a lot about the system. And then the second thing is that I think it kind of, I think this data overall kind of calls out these programs and these specialties that are stating that they want to be diverse, but ultimately these people who would otherwise have gone into these specialties and applied to these programs are not feeling safe in their ability to do so, and so they don't. And I think that that is data and those are stories that these programs never see. And so they'll say, I have this commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, but they don't get this feedback that, oh, they didn't even come across so inclusive that these people with these uh, these marginalized or uh, minority identities didn't even feel safe applying to that specialty or that program because of how the program was coming across. So uh, I hope that your data meets gets to the hands of these programs because I really think that that could be a wake-up call to them and kind of hold them accountable as to their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, that's what that's what I hope the kind of main outcome is from from this research because I think that really genuinely most medical schools and residency programs and individual people just are genuinely not aware of the ways that um, that medical students with minoritized identities are perceiving the standards that they're setting. I think they're genuinely mm-hmm. not trying to have standards that are racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, etc. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But knowing how many students feel that way and mm-hmm. how that actually pushes people out of specialties or forces people to totally change the way they present themselves, um, like you said, I think could be very, um, just very informative and maybe surprising to a lot of different, um, just a lot of different people and, and, and institutions. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think people are trying to be racist or homophobic. I don't think that they're setting out each day to to discriminate against these groups of people. But it is, yeah, you don't see the experience through these people's eyes. And so it really takes listening to them and hearing data like this that changes things. So, Did you, during this process, measure like anxiety and depression or like other symptoms that this, you know, repressing a part of yourself could cause like harm to students? Yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't measure it in the sense that like, I didn't use like a GAD seven or something like that to, to, to like see like actually like numerically, like how much anxiety or depression or whatever people had. But I did definitely talk about like talk specifically about mental health and lots of people talked about how they were diagnosed with anxiety or depression for the first time in medical school and I mean people talked about like getting to some really dark places um, mentally and emotionally um, particularly because of feeling so isolated by being one of the only people in their class who had a particular identity um, and just feeling like so alone or feeling 
so much like they couldn't be who they were. Um, and so it's, it's definitely a very, very, like very real impact for sure. That just kind of came to mind. Cause we were talking about like, will they, you're with your, like your follow-up study and everything like that. And I think when you express it, like this is the harm you're doing, um, people are more likely to listen like, Oh, we are harming our, our students and our residents. And I just know there was one quote that you had in there that really resonated with me. And I know lots of other people um, that I've spoken to, we talked about it on our microaggression episode, but like the quote where someone was trying to get into a surgery or emergency medicine, especially something that's very highly competitive, maybe a little high stress. Um, and they were afraid to express any emotions for fear that they would be stereotyped as like an angry black woman. And I just, that's where I was coming from. Cause I just know that like that constant thought of like, don't react to something when you want to, and maybe your peer might be able to, um, just because they don't share the same types of identities you hold, um, can be very frustrating and disheartening. Kind of all of that to say, like, how do we change this system when, because I feel like a lot of times the burden is placed on the people who are already beaten down by the system to fix it. So how, how do we change this? Yeah, that is a great question. Kind of to what we were talking about a little bit earlier um, with that a lot of medical schools and residency programs just um, aren't aware that this is how medical students are perceiving the professionalism standards that are conveyed to them. I think that using these findings, um, people in medical education could really take a step back and consider how, how these findings might relate to their school's own professionalism standards, both explicit and implicit standards, and adjust them accordingly and also educate attendings who work with students on clerkships about um, about all of this so they can be more aware of the ways that their own racial and gender biases um, can affect the ways that they evaluate all of their med students and how those biases can then differentially harm students with minoritized identities. I think just, yeah, making making the people who are doing the grading and things like that more more aware of how their actions can like are hurting medical students like now like every day um i think could be um could be helpful in sort of mitigating those same harms from happening quite as much in the future Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a good like call to action for people who might be going into medical education who might be preceptors in the future which spoiler all of us here are graduating from medical school and becoming residents are going to be teachers at one point in our training so keeping these kinds of things in mind and you know undergoing implicit bias training and um, implementing that at your residency program if it doesn't already have it um, calling out preceptors and you know, situations in which you feel comfortable um, calling them out for microaggressions that they may be committing. Um, Obviously, third year and even fourth year medical students might not feel safe doing these things while they're in such high stakes positions, such as trying to get the evaluation, trying to get the honors for the clerkship, trying to match into residency. So I think that that 
kind of escalates the responsibility to residents and faculty members and program directors to keep these things in the forefront of their minds and in their missions for their career, their practice, and for their program, which may be a a lofty statement, but I think it's important to have that in mind. 100%. It's definitely something that will be hard and won't happen overnight, but it needs to be done. Um, Because, and this is something I wanted to ask you about, is I feel like this has some impact. There have been studies to show um, on our patients because we're now having professions that aren't as diversified as they should be. Um, And we know that patients receive better care when they receive care from someone who may identify with a, a similar background as them. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on like the potential like impact this will have on over over our patients and their health outcomes. Yeah, there is a lot of data showing that when patients have a doctor who shares their racial identity, their gender identity, their sexual orientation, um, they are more likely to go back to the doctor. They have better health outcomes on a variety of measures and the overall mortality rate is lower. Um, And so, um, especially when there are certain specialties that are comprised of like, a very, very high percentage of straight white men, um, people who need to get care in those specialties are left with very few options um, uh, of doctors who share aspects of their identity. Um, And so um, definitely in terms of just health outcomes for our patients, um, it has an impact that way. And then also for the future of the profession, see like younger people seeing people who look like them as their own doctors um can really you know help people feel like oh i i might belong in medicine after all like i didn't think there were people Mm -hmm. who looked like me but um i just saw this like non-binary doctor who actually like that is me and so i can go into medicine and and things like that um like there was there was one participant who um I really love their quote, so I just like wanted to share it. Um, they said, I feel like my dyed hair is professional because it's a way that I am expressing myself right now. And I can help people feel more comfortable getting medical care than they may otherwise be. And then I also feel more comfortable because I'm not trying to hide parts of myself or things that I'm interested in. Um, and this was a black, queer, non-binary um, participant. Um, and I just, I really liked that because I, I feel like it really encompasses Um, all of the positive things that can come out of choosing to really be intentionally um, uh, authentic about who you are um, when you're working with patients. I hope for a future where everyone can be authentically themselves in the future. I just imagine a future like that and it just makes you so happy. And see representation in medicine of people who look like them and identify, hold similar identities as they do. That kind of leads to another question for the professionalism like guidelines we have set for yourself how is that like hindering people applying to medical school because even if you know you see someone who may look like you because they have to express professionalism maybe in a more tightly 
um, or like a tighter box than I normally would might make you go, oh, well, clearly there's something different about us, which means I can't succeed in this field. Yeah, so when when people in the study were talking about professionalism standards, they were very explicit. They were like, we obviously need some. Like, we need to be on time for things. We need to, like, you know, be kind and be, like, team players and and all of that stuff. It was really the professionalism standards that were about um, the ways that people look and and speak and express emotion that, that they, you know, that they had a problem with. And, yeah, I think that a lot of those standards are just largely unnecessary and hurt um, people's ability to interact with and relate with our patients. Hurts the prospects of diversification of the profession um, because just when people with minoritized identities don't see themselves reflected in or belonging in medicine, there's just a lot less incentive, I think, sometimes to even try to get there because it feels like it isn't going to be possible. And when when you can see yourself represented, then the just like the way that people in my study talked about just like when they were undergrads, like before going to medical medical school, just having one mentor who um, shared their racial identity or sexual orientation or whatever um, just made them feel like, oh, okay, I can actually do this. And so like just having one person um, really actually made a big difference for a lot of people. That's wonderful. I am curious you know, out of all these conversations that you've had with these people in your studies and, you know, even outside of your study, um, what ways have people found to deal with these difficulties, you know, balancing their authentic self with what is perceived as professional and having to maybe damper some parts of themselves to make the grade to match at a certain program. What have people done to deal with all of this stuff? I think the biggest thing that people talked about was finding community within their medical schools with people who did share their identities. Mm-hmm. Um, um, at a lot of schools, people talked about, uh, specifically black women participants talked about how there would be like a group me that was for all of the black women medical students in the whole school. And they could kind of, the, the older students could pass down advice um, about, you know, certain um, certain attendings that they maybe had to, like, watch out for or, um, mm-hmm. or just really be able to kind of commiserate together. And so just, like, having a space where um, they all felt like they could just be honest about what they were experiencing um, with people who probably had had similar experiences, that was huge for a lot of people, um, in terms of feeling like they didn't have to kind of bottle it all up and, and be isolated in their experiences. Mm. Like just general advice for students, um, going through this, who may be like the one, um, person who you talked about, who they were the only, um, black and only queer identifying person in their school. Um, I think that, so on, like on med Twitter, there are a lot of people with, um, a lot of diverse identities who, who are pretty vocal about those identities. And, um, so if you feel really isolated in your identity at the, at your own individual medical school, I think looking to those kind of larger networks that you can find on med Twitter or through like the medical student pride Alliance and different things like that. Um, there are a lot of people who, who I think really, want to help other students who 
are in situations that maybe they were in in the past. Um, and so, yeah, reaching out beyond your individual institution um, and just finding support in in other ways, even if it's just kind of like through virtual connections. I think that's um, that's another another option for people who feel alone. Mm-hmm. That's a great tip. So just to kind of wrap things up, because this is such a meaningful and I feel like impactful discussion with a lot of key points, I want to try something different today that we normally don't do at the end of our podcast episodes. But I want to try to give a summary based on our discussion today, like kind of take home points. Feel free to add anything or correct me if I'm I'm wrong. But Kind of big take home points are there are students who are from uh, who share maybe one or more um, identities that are marginalized. And this has a big impact on, you know, how safe and comfortable they feel in medical school. It can lead to a lot of depression, anxiety and even um, alter the course of their life in terms of what professions they may go into. And that as students who may identify as some of those, but also as students who are just allies and for residents, faculty, like it is our job and it should be the one of our foremost thoughts in the morning um, or every day to figure out how best can we truly make a safe and inclusive environment for all. And maybe one of those is challenging the concept of professionalism. Um, And especially when it comes to how we dress and our hair color and piercings or tattoos or whatever it, it may be, maybe that is one way we challenge it because you've found that people, when they're unable to truly express themselves they um it causes like i mentioned a lot of mental physical emotional harm and kind of tips for you know students who unfortunately may be experiencing it because it's a a real our reality now um is just to find those who are of the same community as you someone you, you can talk to you know offline maybe get some tips and tricks of who to avoid and what things to do. Um, And then med Twitter is such a valuable option for um, those who do have a community and who may not have a community. Anything you'd like to add? I think that was kind of a perfect summary of everything we talked about. That was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, all that to say, speaking of med Twitter, Jules, where can our listeners connect with you? Um, I am on Twitter at Jules underscore Madzai um, and or Instagram at Jules Madzai. And then one thing we like to do, we've started ever since we did a joint podcast with another podcast is one because this was such a heavy topic, trying to end on maybe a little happier note. Um, What is one thing you're looking forward to? It may have already happened this week or may be happening in the next week. Um, So 
I recently, so I have a pet greyhound named Clementine, and I recently got her a new, really adorable red flannel sweater, and since it's like snowing and sleeting out right now, um, I think as soon as we're done recording, I'm going to put the sweater on her and take her for a walk around the neighborhood, and she always gets lots of attention, and so just like in the immediate future, I am really excited to put this really cute sweater on my greyhound. I need a picture. <laughs> yes, I'll send one. <laughs> She would get all of my attention if she walked past my apartment. I would just be all of the cuddles. That's so cute. What about you, Rachel? Oh, I didn't realize I was getting asked this. Cool. Um, Let's see. I am, in general, really excited because Alex and I are in the thick of interview season right now, and I am interviewing with some really cool programs um, that have some really cool initiatives going on. So I'm excited about that in general. Alex, how about you? What are you excited for this week? Well, I'm excited to be finishing my elective and then being done for two months um, to just focus on interviews and my health. Um, but I'm also excited because it's my brother. He plays for the University of Louisville, and it's his last home game this Saturday. So getting to see all my family and hopefully watching a really great game. They beat Wake Forest. And that was an incredible game like two weeks ago, three weeks ago. So <laughs> very excited. That is so fun. Well, thank you, Jules, for joining us on this podcast and for being willing to share your dissertation. I know you haven't quite like finished it or like uh, defended it yet. So we wish you the best of luck on it. Um, if I was in the room, immediately you'd get it. You'd pass. Immediately, immediately yes. yes. Immediately, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast and being interested in my dissertation. This is kind of the first time that I've really talked about it, um, other than just like in conversation with people. I've just been doing so much writing that it was really fun to actually just talk about what I'm doing. So um, yeah, I, I had a good time. 